As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, uh, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi. uh, We're talking about a a difficult, challenging issue again. (laughs) That's unlike us. Uh, today's today's topic is, is something that you'll obviously be very familiar with. I hope, as a as a, a pediatrician, is is prenatal screening. It's it's diagnostic tests on, on children while they're they're in the womb, um, and the ethical kind of conundrums that that our advances in that area kind of have thrown up. But before we dig into the kind of nitty gritty of this topic, I think it's worth flagging up that this is obviously a deeply sensitive and personal topic for many people, including some of those who'll be listening. Yes, I mean, what we're going to be talking about are uh, the terrible dilemmas that are confronted when uh, a diagnosis of a of a fetal abnormality is made before birth. And it's perfectly possible that some people listening to this have been personally affected by this issue. You may yourself have um, faced this challenge in a pregnancy. You may have a disabling uh, genetic condition. And, and so... I think it's really important that whenever we talk about these issues that we recognise there's real pain uh, here and, and our first duty is to try to understand the struggles that people have um, and, and the difficulties that technology causes as we try to to live lives that are faithful to, to the way we're, we're made. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I guess it's another example, as as you often say about about our overarching theme in this podcast, about how technology often unintentionally is changing the experience of what it means to be human. In this sense, it's irreversibly changed the experience of what it means to be pregnant. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a it's a a very interesting theme, uh, and certainly, you know, if you were to go back uh, before the sixties and seventies, which is really when the very earliest ultrasound and screening tests became available in pregnancy before that point really there was nothing that was known about uh, the baby in the womb um, and the the woman you know the mother had always the possibility of of, of having an abortion abortion's been around uh, since the dawn of history and um, <clears throat> has always been uh, well recognized whether it was legal or illegal but apart from the option of a of abortion there was nothing else really to do during a pregnancy apart from try and keep healthy and look forward with anticipation to to meeting your new your new baby when they eventually arrived 
and so as you say abortion is not a new idea there's evidence of it kind of as far back as we have historical evidence but previously it was all based around the desire for the child or lack thereof and, and people only really ever had abortions because they didn't want for various reasons to be pregnant so I suppose what the last 60 years has, has done is it's opened up the ability for us to look inside the womb and find out that the child is not how we imagined and is carrying some sort of disability and then people are starting to have abortions based not because they didn't want a child they might definitely want a child but because they didn't want that kind of child Yes, and ultrasound, I've often thought that ultrasound is an astonishing ability to peer into what was previously completely unknown. You know, think about Psalm 139, where the idea is that I'm being knit together, you knit me together in my mother's womb. But it, the idea is within the depths of the earth, it was completely hidden. It was the, the secret chamber in which God was at work. But now with high-resolution ultrasound, we get this extraordinary uh, picture into into the womb. And I can still remember the impact of seeing uh, my children, including you, Tim, um, the first time, that first scan, and uh, and seeing, seeing this little being moving around. And uh, I remember I had tears in my eyes and... Uh, and it's happened in our hospital at UCH uh, where the pregnancy was being supervised. And I remember going back down to my colleagues with this, you know, floating on, on air and, and saying, mm. I've just seen my baby on the scan. <laughs> and the general sort of reaction was big deal. You know, scans were <laughs> ten a penny. We all looked at scans all day, every day. What was what was so different? So... Mm. Um, so it has given this amazing um, vision into the womb. But unfortunately, along with that insight comes all kinds of ethical challenges and difficulties. So I suppose to start off with, we should be kind of clear about what we're talking about and what the options, what technology is used to to screen uh, children before they're born. So people obviously are very familiar, um, at least here in the, NH the NHS in the UK, you typically are offered... Uh, an ultrasound scan at 12 weeks and at 20 weeks what, what what are they looking for in particular yeah so the the first ultrasound scan is really just to confirm that the pregnancy is viable um and that, that, for instance that it's not an ectopic pregnancy or something like that and also um whether or not there are twins or triplets even so um it's and the dating of, of the pregnancy all either, this is the fundamental information but it's not until the 20-week scan when the baby is much more developed that it's possible then to detect uh, a whole range of uh, rare conditions um, including spina bifida or anencephaly when the brain doesn't develop possibly properly uh, other abnormalities of the abdomen uh, congenital heart disease problems with the kidneys uh, a very long list of possible uh, abnormalities can be picked up by ultrasound these days. And what other tests might might um, mothers be offered as, as routine as, as alongside ultrasound? So in the NHS, um, and there is uh, this uh, program called the NHS Fetal Anomaly Screening Program, which is rolled out across the NHS and which all hospitals and midwives have to comply with. Um, Women are offered uh, blood tests um, called a, a combined test or a, a quadruple test. And um, these are basically 
intended particularly to identify chromosomal problems, particularly Down syndrome or rarer, rarer syndromes called Edwards syndrome and Patau syndrome. And so somehow they're able to, even though it's the mother's blood, not the child's blood, they're able to figure out, the look into the chromosomes and look into the genetic code of, of the fetus. Well, what was discovered, first of all, was that there were there was elevated levels of various hormones in the uh, mother's uh, bloodstream which correlated with an increased risk of um, the fetus having Down syndrome or one of these other rare chromosomal abnormalities. So what these tests done by, by measuring a number of different uh, markers within the mother's blood, you end up with a risk score of, say, 1 in 83 or 1 in 207 or 1 in 2050, um, a very precise statistical risk score that you have, that your fetus has one of these rare chromosomal problems. And when when mothers are told the results of, of, of that those tests, what kind of information is, is offered? Is it just a simple kind of readout, your, you have X risk of these, this condition or is there more? It's basically that, a statistical risk. And then what happens in the NHS is if your risk is is deemed as being more than 1 in 150, um, greater than 1 in 150, you're then offered a diagnostic test. So if it's if it's less than 1 in 150, so say, you know, the mother is told, well, your risk of Down syndrome is 1 in 189. Uh, the mother may, may well be told, but we don't routinely do anything else. Um and I, I, we advise you really just to ignore that. Um, but if it's the risk is less than 150, sorry, is greater than 150, um, say one in 86 or one in 37, uh, then the mother will be offered a uh, diagnostic invasive test, and that's something called amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling, when a needle is inserted into the womb and the uterus and either fluid around the baby or else uh, a section of the placenta, a small fragment of the placenta is removed and analysed. And of course these carry separate from what they're trying to do which is to confirm or kind of deny the 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 chance of of the the fetal kind of abnormality but they separately also because they are invasive carry a, a small but not impossible chance of, of of prompting a miscarriage. Yes, and this is one of the tragic and very difficult, painful dilemmas that uh, mothers are confronted with. Um, and that is um, the risk of miscarriage and therefore of the, the unborn baby dying is, is somewhere between 1 in 200, 1 in 100, or it seems to vary from centre to centre and depending on the precise skill of the operator and so on, but it's of that order. And uh, therefore, there is a small but significant chance that, that a baby who in fact is completely healthy um, might die simply as a result of this diagnostic test, which of course is a, a terrible tragedy. And, and parents are warned of that risk when... Um, when they are considering whether or not to go on for this uh, formal uh, diagnostic test. So if I've heard you right, there there might be some instances where, so you're offered the diagnostic invasive test if your chances is, is uh, greater than 1 in 150, let's say your chances is 1 in 149, you then go on to take a, 
an invasive test which might have a, a one in 100 i.e an even more greater possibility of of killing your child effectively so as i understood that right you might actually do this test when the odds of of the original kind of condition being present are less than the odds of of causing a miscarriage well they're certainly of the same kind of order the you know the, the risk of the baby having the condition and the risk of a miscarriage happening are of the same kind of order and and that uh it is a terrible tragedy because it means effectively that a a fetus that's completely normal might die uh, as a result of of the test um, just because uh, there's no way to get rid of this risk and um, because of this tragedy there's been a lot of development to try to de develop a way of detecting down syndrome and these other chromosomal abnormalities without causing a risk to the fetus and so what has been developed is what is now called non-invasive prenatal testing which involves again taking a sample from the mother's blood so there's no, nothing invasive uh, as far as the fetus is concerned but it it is possible to isolate a small number of cells from the fetus the unborn baby that are circulating in the mother's bloodstream and and the dna is isolated um, and uh, is analyzed and it's then possible to detect chromosomal abnormalities in the fetus just from a, a blood test from the mother so so the nipt um as far as i understand that is just starting to be rolled out in the nhs it's not standard or, or routine or available in every center but it is starting to become available and, and that carries no risk to the baby unlike these other but it is but does it does it have the same um diagnostic capacity you know is it as certain as doing an amniocentesis well this, that's the problem it isn't it's it's probably 98% 99% accurate but it isn't 100% accurate so we're again in this difficult probabilistic condition and therefore it's possible that you have what's called a false positive in other words this test has flagged up a uh, that the fetus has some abnormality of the chromosomes which in fact is not accurate and um, therefore the general advice from uh, doctors working in this field is that an abortion should not be carried out until the formal diagnostic test has been carried out, then, uh, until amniocentesis has been carried out. But w the, the situation is now complicated because although the NIPT is only being made available uh, in certain areas in the NHS, it's now possible to, to buy it commercially online over the internet. Yes, you just sent me before we start recording a link to a to a website to a company which was uh, based in the UK, which will which will sell you a range of of different NIPT tests uh, straight to your door, starting at just two hundred and ninety nine pounds. Um, and they on the website they have a whole series of of tests going all the way up to nine hundred ninety nine pounds for the most um, comprehensive one. And and these presumably you just get you ship to the door. You you do a blood a blood sample. Set, post it back to them they analyze in their lab and then they tell you um if your child has got down syndrome or edward syndrome or micro deletion 22 q11.2 whatever that means yes and um the uh in some most of these tests they will simply send you the results and say well you know that's what the result shows uh, for, if you pay extra, uh, in this particular case, you can have a complimentary 15-minute telephone consultation 
with a genetic counsellor in the event of a high-risk result. Um, and that, of course, raises the whole issue about genetic counselling. And uh, you can imagine that a mother who discovers that she has some incredibly rare thing called a chromosomal aneuploidy and microdeletion, that she didn't even know what those words meant, is now um, very much dependent on, on really careful, wise, informed counselling about what the significance of this might be for her baby. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And I suppose what something we probably should have mentioned earlier is that all of this testing, and, and it continues to advance year by year with what is possible, what is available, It there is no ability to treat any of these conditions, these rare chromosomal abnormalities in the womb. So the, the information is simply information, and the only options are great, now I know my child has Down syndrome and I either choose to do nothing and carry on but with this knowledge or I choose to have an abortion. There's, 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 no, other, there's no other use that information can be put to. That's true for these major genetic anomalies. It, it isn't true for the other conditions we talked about, things like congenital heart disease or um, other structural abnormalities. Uh, which can be treated, and some it's, it's even possible, increasingly now possible, for interventions to be happened in the unborn baby to have some kind of fetal uh, treatment uh, before the baby's born. So, so there are a number of conditions like that. But when we're talking about these genetic conditions, then no, there is no available treatment. Hmm. And I suppose that's where we get into some of the, the tricky ethical questions and dilemmas, because where you know it's easy to say on the surface well giving you know soon to be parents more information how could that be a bad thing but actually this the kind of increasing options for screening including kind of going private and and buying these test kits over the over the internet as you mentioned genetic counseling it actually doesn't providing information then does leads to further questions about what do i do with this information yes it does it raises all kinds of complex ethical dilemmas which uh we're still sort of trying to get our heads around and struggle with the implications. Uh, but, but one thing just to mention is that the NIPT test also uh, provides the gender of the baby, whether it's male or female. And uh, one of the concerns is that there are many cultures across the world where there's a very strong social pressure to have a male child. A male child is highly desirable and therefore it's possible to use this test, which can be done from about 10 weeks gestation, uh, to find out whether or not the the, uh, the fetus is a boy or a girl. And if the, the fetus is in the gender that isn't desired, you can then go and have an abortion. You don't have to tell the abortion clinic why you're having an abortion. You could just say that for whatever reason, this is unwanted, the baby's unwanted. And this way, this technology is allowing fetal sex selection. Hmm. And I know it's certainly the case in some parts of the world that this is an, this is happening often enough that there is now a marked difference in the birth rates for boys and girls, which is, you know, in nature, almost exactly 50-50. And that there are certain places where, where it's now seen in the kind of statistics of who is being born each year that there is a, a marked increase in boys being born, which can only be explained by 
socially driven sex, sex selection abortions. That's right. So in the NHS, um, uh, in the screening process, parents are not routinely told the uh, sex of the baby unless there, it's for a medical reason. There are um, rare conditions which are only expressed in one particular gender, male or female. And in those reasons, there may be a medical reason to disclose the result. But otherwise, for social reasons, the NHS policy is not to reveal the sex because of the risk of sex selection abortion. Hmm. So zooming out a little bit, so that's the kind of overview of what kind of prenatal screening is routinely available, at least in, in one kind of developed Western nation here in the UK. What, why does this all mean? Why are we talking about this? Why does this matter? Surely it's just the standard onward march of technology and medicine. It gets better each year. We get more information. Was there any kind of thinking or have and just been rolling out these these new screening tests just as they become available? Yeah, well, the fascinating thing is that there's never really been any any very serious democratic debate about these screening tests for disabilities, including the screening test for Down syndrome. It was introduced by doctors simply because it seemed obvious that this was a good thing to do, uh, that that it, it was seen as a way of reducing the, quotes burden of disability in the community, and that by, just by giving parents options um, of whether or not they wish to have uh, an abortion was, was basically assumed to be a good thing without any real careful ethical discussion. And, it, and the NHS has really just adopted this really very sophisticated fetal anomaly screening program uh, without any detailed uh, democratic discussion as to whether this is, this is something which we as a country believe is, is right. And it, it is interesting how it, uh, it, it leads to a very extraordinary doublethink um, in, in our society, whereas, uh, you know, in, there's an increasing tendency, quite rightly and appropriately, to respect the lives of um, people with disabilities in our community and to em emphasise the importance of disability rights. Uh, there's a great deal of emphasis about the Paralympics and uh, para-athletic uh, uh, athletes and, and other people and, and, and a celebration of people with disabilities and they increasingly... Uh, appear in, 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 in films and television programs and online and so on. And yet at the same time, uh, as a society, we seem to be uh, in, investing in, in, in order to try to detect uh, disabling conditions before birth so that parents have the option of having an abortion. Indeed, I, I read um, when the debate around the kind of or when the NIPT was first being kind of discussed and introduced in the UK, the stats I think are in the order of that currently approximately 90% of um, children who are detected as, as, as having Down syndrome are aborted before birth and the expectation was that when the NIPT comes in because it is um, can be can be done uh, uh, without uh, invasive and so it carries less risk uh, that those numbers will increase because more mothers will become aware uh, the, uh, um, that their child has Down syndrome. And, and in other countries, I think the, the common example was pointed to was Denmark, which introduced the NIPT uh, several years ago. Uh, abortion rates for Down syndrome are approaching 99%. And so we're realistically looking at the prospect of 
some of these conditions disappearing in everyday society, but not because we've treated them or because we found a way to stop conceptions happening, but simply because we've given mothers and fathers the information that their child has Down syndrome at an early enough stage uh, that almost all of them are choosing to abort. Yes, that's right. And, and I think it's not surprising that um, many disabled people uh, feel deeply, deeply um, concerned and hurt by this social activity, that, that the support there is for, uh, for screening um, and, and abortion for fetal abnormality. And um, it's often seen as a kind of attack on, on them. Um, and uh, however much uh, other people try to say, no, no, this is, we're simply offering choices. It, it's, we're not in any way wanting to, um, to lead to the eradication of Down syndrome. Um, that's often how it is, it is interpreted by, by people with disabilities. Hmm. I remember seeing once, uh, I think it was a tweet from from someone uh, commenting on a story about the NIPT saying, you know, something along the lines of, you know, the a cure for Down syndrome is a total cure is 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 possible, and it just struck me as almost dystopian, kind of the way that the language of cure uh, was used because there is there is no cure for Down syndrome. We are as far away from that as we ever have been. What they really meant was we can build a society in which there are no people with down syndrome because they will all have been aborted before before birth yes and just to read out what one disabled activist called marcia saxton put she said the mess the message at the heart of prenatal diagnosis is the greatest insult some of us are too flawed in our very dna to exist we are unworthy of being born Fighting for this issue, for our right and worthiness to be born, is the fundamental challenge to disability oppression. It underpins our most basic claim to justice and equality. Hmm. And how do you respond then to the kind of medical professionals who say, well, hold on, that's not on us, that's on the parents who choose to have abortions. We never compel anyone, it's always their choice. We're just giving more information. And what could possibly be wrong with providing parents to make with better information to make their informed own decisions independently. Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because that argument really taps into a very one of the very fundamental trends in our whole society, which is choice and consumerism. And how can you possibly be against choice? How can you possibly say that offering choices to people is not a good thing? And and I think we need to sort of stand back and and say. But is that really right? And often, as a paediatrician, I, you know, it it strikes me that um, after a baby is born, uh, we we come and we examine the baby, and we and then and then we say to the mother, "Now, this is a wonderful baby here. Is this the baby that you chose? I mean, are are you really happy with this baby? Are you are you happy to take this baby home? You know, it's your choice. It's it's completely free. You know, the suddenly the rhetoric of choice is lost." Uh, we we don't talk about choices for parents. We talk about choices about, you know, what kind of education you want for your child. But we don't ask the parents whether they really want this child, or whether they're going to look after this child, whether this is the child they they'd ordered. Uh, so so the language of consumerism is is very limited. It 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 applies at one area, 
in the human journey, but but not in others. And then the question is, well, why not? Why why do we offer choices at some part in the journey, but not in other? And that kind of has other wider ramifications for mothers in particular, who, because they're aware that these choices might be coming down the track for them, have a kind of implicit subconscious pressure to to distance themselves from their their unborn child because there's a chance that they might have to choose an abortion if they're told by a doctor, you know, in 12, 20 weeks time that that this child has some some horrendous genetic condition. And, and as you say, previously, pregnancy was all about anticipation. Whereas now there's I, I know that you, you've pointed to studies before which talk about how how women have this almost defense mechanism often or they describe it as where, where they don't want to get too attached they want to they certainly don't want to tell people too widely just in case they have to to have an abortion and that and that's a choice or a a judgment that that previous generations of women never had to make yes yeah, so it's paradoxical that the very existence of this technology seems to be creating a kind of psychological distance between the mother and her unborn baby I have to hold back from becoming too attached quotes to this being in my womb because of the possibility that the test will show an abnormality and then I'll have to quotes walk away I'll have to say sorry thanks but no thanks Um, and it's only after all the tests have shown my baby is healthy that I can then really bond with my baby and say yes this is the baby I want this is the baby I'm going to love and care for and 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 so it 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 it, to me it's just very sad that um this kind of psychological consequences of the technology has really transformed the experience of pregnancy and one of the things I've noticed is that once these terrible fears you know because you know if if you were a conscientious parent, you'd have to go and look up all these rare conditions and say, you know, what are what is this condition and why are they doing testing for it? And I didn't realise there was a one in two hundred chance that my baby might have this, and 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 so the pregnancy is spent worrying about, you know, what what if the test was wrong? Maybe maybe they missed it, and maybe there is some terrible condition that my baby has got. So. It, it, there's a very sort of medicalizing the whole experience of bringing a child into the world has now become medicalized and uh, is affected by technology and and worries about rare medical conditions there's a real tragic paradox there or an irony there isn't it in that with every passing year mothers and fathers but particularly mothers are able to know more about their unborn child and yet the more they know the more they are implicitly kind of forced to distance themselves in case this terrible choice is, arises whereas previously parents knew nothing about their child it was a total black box what was going on inside of them and that lack of knowledge allowed them to to be intimate and close because there was no there was no kind of implicit choice that had to be made about whether they would keep the child or not yes and 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 this is a wider issue not uh, it's not just for the prenatal testing it's it also happens uh later on in life Uh, do i want to have uh testing which will which will tell me whether i've got a rare genetic condition when there's no treatment available um and when um people are offered that possibility and when it's known that there's a possibility that they carry a, a, a rare genetic condition 
interestingly, many people decide I don't want to have the test. Mm. Um, I'd rather not know and live my life without knowing. Uh, so, so what it illustrates is, is how that knowledge is not an, un, an unmitigated good. Mm. That knowing things about my child, knowing things about myself, isn't always good. It can actually have unforeseen and very negative consequences. And another strand to this that we haven't discussed yet is the fact that this knowledge is not perfect. And and, and as we're talking about, it's always percentage chances. And then even a 99% confirmation of X, Y, Z does not mean that, uh, that, you know, there are millions of children born every year in the UK alone, probably, maybe hundreds of thousands. Uh, but th- there's a lot. And so 1% chances happen quite a bit. And so that means there's plenty of time where women have gone for all the tests that they've been asked to take and have been told you've got the all clear and then they come nine months down the line they give birth and the doctors say i'm afraid your child does have x condition or or y abnormality and they feel cheated betrayed astonished because they had been effectively told that that was a risk that they had mitigated and managed by taking all these tests and actually obviously you know not no test is perfect yes and so it's almost like there's a sort of an an unspoken contract which is entered into the um, the pregnant woman agrees to have all these complex technological tests to turn up for antenatal to have a testing to have uh, monitoring and scans and all the rest and then the doctors the technocrats implicitly promise that it provided you do everything we will give you a perfect baby and then when the baby is born and it's apparent the baby does have some kind of condition that was missed uh, there's a, a sense of outrage that i kept my part of the bargain but but you the technocrats have failed um and of course, the reality is that that's we the technology cannot promise uh, that kind of one hundred percent accurate prediction. Hmm. So we're coming to the end of this episode, but we wanted to talk further on this about some of the Christian responses and the wider ethical issues about society as a whole about about prenatal testing, um, and in particular, this idea that is knowledge always a good thing, and 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 what implications might this that ever onward march of of prenatal testing mean for for medicine and society as a whole um uh but just lastly then just before we before we leave i wanted to to ping a difficult question to you is is the best thing therefore to do to just to refuse all prenatal testing and just go wind the clock back to 1960s before this is possible and just say i'll take the child i'm given uh no in uh, the short answer is if there is testing that can really make a difference for my child, particularly before birth, then yes, um, I think in general the right thing to do is to have those tests uh, to look for treatable conditions. But if the testing is entirely for genetic uh, abnormalities for which no treatment is available, then I think choosing to refuse to have those tests is is a perfectly valid and responsible option. And and for what it's worth, uh, Celia and I uh, agree that we would not have those, uh, the tests for Down syndrome, uh, because uh, there was no point. We would love the child. We'd been given uh, whatever their condition was. And so uh, that is certainly a, a responsible option, which I would recommend for those who feel 
as I do, that uh, abortion for a disabling condition is inappropriate. Fascinating. All right. Um, well, well, we'll we'll draw it to a close for for today's episode, but we'll come back next week uh, to dig into this a bit further. Uh, and think further about um, as we said some of the implications for society and, and some of the ways that I think Christians should be thinking about these ethical challenges thrown up by by prenatal testing but thanks John uh, as always it's been fascinating grateful for your expertise um, uh, and thank you everyone else for listening um, uh, if you'd like to, to to find out some more resources to to read listen to or watch there's plenty on on John's website that's John Wyatt dot com um or you can always get in touch with us directly if you've got any questions or, or feedback um we're always interested to hear what our listeners think so please do get in touch you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um, but otherwise uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next week you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.